Hi, this is Jess Van Ostrand, reporting to you from New York City, where I recently met with Gilbert Baker, the creator of the rainbow flag. Baker made the first rainbow flag in 1978 for the Gay Pride Parade in San Francisco, and it immediately became the defining symbol of the gay rights movement around the world. He kindly joined me for a conversation recently about how he got the idea, how the flag was made, and what it means to him today. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Gilbert, for meeting with me Thanks, to talk about you and your work. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I have to jump in with a really specific question because, as you know, the Project Room is based in Seattle. And not so long ago, the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle, where the Project Room is based, um, got a very special rainbow flag treatment as its crosswalks. And I'm dying to know if you were involved with this or if you know anything and can tell us how that came about. Well, yeah, I do. I, I, um, that, that is an evolution of something that happened in Australia a number of years ago. We had the, uh, the gay games, the gay Olympics in uh, Sydney. And um, at that time, the city government or whatever, they put in a rainbow crosswalk in the neighborhood of Sydney. Several years later, in the, the ever-ending filling the potholes and road fixes, they accidentally tore up the rainbow crosswalk that they put in to do some street work, right? Well, it outraged citizens in Australia. How dare you tear up this beautiful rainbow cross rock? And it was really taken as kind of a diss against the gay community. And the reaction to that was, quite spontaneously, people began to chalk crosswalks and sidewalks in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places, to the point where the government decided they needed to pass a law against chalk. It became so ubiquitous, and it was such a wonderful, spontaneous outpouring of solidarity with gay people everywhere in Australia. It really caught on, and really lovely, you know, chalk, how, how wonderful is that? Kind of right. kind of a little bit, you know, youthful. It's well, it's something anybody can do. Right, and it's yeah. a little bit temporary, and yet it really made a statement, right? So it, the, the crosswalk thing sort of began in Australia with the removal of a crosswalk that everybody loved and was kind of taken for granted. And then when it was gone, there was this big reaction. Well, then subsequent to that, we began to see the, um, the implementation of crosswalks in you know, Key West, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, uh, San Diego, and Los Angeles, and, and so all across the U.S., and there have been these um, rainbow crosswalks where they've taken the colors of the rainbow flag and adapted them for the pedestrian crosswalks. And part of that comes from um, an evolved technology for uh, printing, if you will, asphalt. There are these oh. wonderful new heat thermal, I forgot the name of it, but it's like this crazy thing where they sort of bake the color into the asphalt and it's oh very gosh. durable and and you know it's fairly there's a certain level of, of maintenance required to keep the rainbow sparkling you know so oh my goodness that's so interesting well since you bring up production um maybe i can ask you a question about production sure um when you first thought of the rainbow flag and from my uh, the research I've done, it really seemed like an inspired moment in creativity. 
and that it was a great community effort. But I wonder how much planning actually had to go into it. Because first of all, it was enormous. So you couldn't just like start sewing a flag on your own. I, I know that you had to sort of do a little bit of planning. How did, did. how did the production of that actually come together based on limited resources? A lot of A lot of math and a lot of just, you know, just winging it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a very um, skilled, experienced seam master or seamstress. Mm-hmm. And so I knew how to sew very well. And and part of that, at the, and we're talking about the 70s now, and a lot of that was costumes and theater. and So I sort of had a feel for scale and that sort of thing. And the flags were very big. I never, I, I think the year before I made a banner or two, they were flags in the sense that they went up on a pole, but they weren't flags in the sense of being thought of as flags. But the next year, in 1978, I deliberately made a rainbow flag. It was a flag. It was intended to be a flag. And so... Uh, flags have elements. There's a hoist. Mm. There's a fly. There's the way that they work on halyards. And there's a lot of, even though they're very simple, there's actually elements to them that you have to think about. And, of course, the biggest element is the wind. And the way that the wind uh, is, is very strong in San Francisco, where we flew it the first time in 50, 60-mile-an-hour winds, you know, 10 stories, uh, that really puts a lot of stress on fabric. It can shred very easily. Flags are very temporary. They shred immediately. Or, you know, you see that. Mm. People don't maintain their flags, and, you know, after a couple of years, they're a tattered They mess. look terrible, right? right. It's part of the planned <laughs> obsolescence we got going. So anyway... <laughs> So, but anyway, so I, I did think about that, and I thought about the, the fabric in terms of that I wanted it to be uh, magical. There's something really wonderfully kinetic and, and wild about fabric in the wind. It's completely mm. unpredictable. There's no, you just, you don't, sometimes they'll just hang slack. There's no winds. Other times it's blowing so mad. It's you can't even see it. It's shimmering so fast. So I wanted to use a special fabric, a very lightweight fabric that would approximate silk, which I couldn't afford. So I used this very beautiful um, lightweight muslin, which I hand-dyed with my friends. We dyed all the colors again to give it that you know, ground-up thing, made it at the Gay Community Center because it was important the birthplace be you know, at the center. So yeah, the production of it was sort of sort of thought out in the sense that you know I thought, well, I'll make it as big as I can possibly imagine. <laughs> I think the flagpoles were around a hundred feet high, and wow. so we figured out that the biggest flag we could fly with the with, if it, if it was slack that there's a, a diagonal would be about thirty by sixty feet. So if was it, there any testing or trial yes, and error? Yes, I did. I mean, how did I, you the do day that? before or was it the day before? It might have been the day before. I thought, because the next day was the big, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are coming, this is going to be it. Maybe we ought to just make sure everything works. <laughs> so, and I'd never used the, the, the flagpoles, or these big, beautiful bronze uh, poles, two of them, and they have an inter- internal halyard system where the cable goes up on the inside of the pole, and there's a crank. and a, a, Oh, you know, so you don't see the ropes? You see it from the top, but they don't hang down, like, oh, you don't tie it off. Oh, that's so fancy. Okay, very, I get very, it. Well, it's uh, to... A, number one, protect it from the elements and the wind. Rope also disintegrates very fast, and, of course, from vandalism and theft. So we went over there, and we, uh, you know, took down the very large flags they had, replaced all the halyards to put up our even larger flags, Mm -hmm. you know, 
and got them, oh, I don't know, maybe halfway up the pole, and it ripped right away from the heading. And I was devastated. I was like, oh, my God. Was this the day before? The day before, yeah. And I went, oh, I didn't even make it to the top, and the fabric was, it was so windy, and the fabric was heavy, not heavy, but so much of it, the mass of it, it ripped from the heading, which is what attached it to the pole, and I realized that all my ideas about heading that I'd seen down at the local hardware store on flags, and it was totally not happening. So I had to quickly uh, run it back and improvise with um, jute, like they use at the top of theater uh, drapes and stuff, and I built a special heading using a, a heavy theatrical jute. So that, that kind of stuck with me, and, but it was, uh, it was lucky I'd had some theater experience, you know, so I knew, well, it's not the end of the world, but fix it. Well, can you set the stage a little bit for what San Francisco was like in those years and how this big event took place? And I mean, <laughs> I'm just curious what it felt like to be there. Well, um, it was part of the, the the Gay Freedom Day Parade, as we call it, every year in June. There's the annual Gay Pride Parades, as we call them now. All of those are related back to the Stonewall uh, uh, riot, if you will, in New York in 1969. And so it's a celebration of the sort of birth of the modern LGBT movement. It was the Gay Freedom Day Parade in 1978, and then in 1979, it was the Lesbian and Gay Freedom Day mm. Parade. Was 78 the first year? Oh, no. Oh. It started immediately after Stonewall. The first year oh, okay. of the Gay Pride Parades was 1970, right after Stonewall. Okay. They were very small. I remember going to the first ones. It was like five, 600 people. Okay. But by 1977, which was the year we were doing things like fighting Anita Bryant, Harvey Milk getting elected to the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, we were really beginning to become very, very visible and very, very much a, a, a power in certainly San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, the big urban centers. We were becoming more and more power. And, and, and a reflection of that was that our celebrations went from being 500 people to being 500,000 people mm. because our movement became much, much bigger and, and embraced you know, the, the, the broader community. So, yeah, so I was part of all of that from the very get-go. You know, I remember... I remember going to my very first gay pride parade. I lived in the Haight-Ashbury, and I was just, I, was, I came out when I was like uh, 19. So I was, I was out, but I was a huge drag queen, but I was kind of in the closet about how fabulous I was. So. Did you have a drag queen name? Never. Well, until <laughs> later, until later. And then later I had to have one, and I became Busty Ross. After oh. Busty Ross. But no, I was Perfect. Gilbert, and I always loved being that I just looked great in a dress, and I didn't mm-hmm. need to, you know, adopt a, a... I didn't need to make it an act. It was me. It wasn't an act. It, it wasn't, wasn't a separate identity. Yeah, well, it was me. Yeah. And I looked great in dresses, and I still look good in dresses. And you could make them yourself, <laughs> I, I imagine. I had to make them myself. I couldn't afford to buy the ones I liked. Are you kidding? Yeah, I'd be down to Magnus looking at all the Halstons and running home to copy them. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But, um, yeah, so I love to sew, and, uh, and that's where it all came from. And as the movement began to get bigger and more political, I was, you know, a friend of Harvey Milk and Lee Jones and ran with a very political crowd, and I was the guy they call up saying, we're having a march and we need a banner, mm. you know, and banners and, excuse me, placards, all of those things, those visual elements really uh, uh, send the message. They make it bigger and they make it more colorful, and, and they're very powerful uh, in the media. 
And I remember that before the rainbow flag came along, there was the pink triangle. And I remember being introduced to that, I think, when I first got to college. And it seemed really prominent. And then there wasn't a pink triangle. Then there was a rainbow flag. It seemed like maybe there was a story behind that transition that's interesting. Yeah, well, the rainbow flag was the answer to the pink triangle. Okay, in what way? Well, in the sense that the pink triangle was put on us by Hitler, who designed it. Hitler. And so it comes from this terrible place of oppression and murder and holocaust and okay I get it and and that's an important part of our history but we really needed our symbol if you will to be something that was from us something that really expressed our joy our beauty our diversity our love if you will and our power so flags are about power flags are about being visible about proclaiming power Um, so they're slightly different than the logo or the stigma of the pink triangle so, yeah, it was a very deliberate answer to the pink triangle. In fact, I was challenged by Harvey Milk um, to come up with, he wanted a logo. Um, uh, How did he put it to you exactly? He said, we need a new logo. The pink triangle is, you know, so over, we got to get past that. And I was like, of course we do. But a logo, it was at a time of, you know, graphic, everything was, you know, back in the day, letra set for all your old people out there. <laughs> <laughs> and everything was kind of turned into a little, you know, black and white gizmo graphic thing. And, you know, everybody had their logo, whatever it was. Mm. Uh, and that's fine. And I get it. But flags are more than logos. Flags can be logos, but they can be everything else. Flags are a whole language. And uh, the bicentennial in 1976 in the U.S. was the 200th anniversary of the America Revolution. That's when I really noticed flags, because it was on everything, from the most sublime Jasper Johns exhibitions to the tackiest souvenirs you ever saw to insane fashion, you name it, the American flag was on everything. And then I really realized that's what we need. We need a flag that can become you know, beautiful artwork and tacky fashion. It became the names of organizations. It translated itself into all kinds of creativity and, and expression. So uh, that's why I, I knew that we needed more than a logo, that we needed a flag. And, and, you know, once I, you know, explained that to Harvey and my friends about why a flag was important, of course they all agreed. And, and, and I, I don't think they had the same passion for sewing that I did. <laughs> but I also really think that they're a very beautiful craft, a very incredible art, and mm-hmm. a very ancient one at that. So for me, it was um, it was an education. I taught myself, basically. I had to invent it and inform myself. I, okay, so I made the rainbow flag. goes up in 1978. It's a hit. I mean, immediately hundreds of thousands of people are looking at it going, that's our new symbol. They, everybody just owned it, right, to their soul, right? Within five seconds, people are saying, I got to have, Gilbert, make me one, make me one. I'm going, oh, sure, oh, sure, oh, sure. I'm realizing, I, I, uh, I, I can't do this. <laughs> I got to get some help here. Right. So I went to the, the, the local flag company, Paramount Flag Company, little mom and pop shop, not a little bit small. And, you know, I walked in with my 1978, you know, pink hair and turquoise lame jeans and platform shoes, and it was really quite fabulous in those days. And so, hi, I'm here, and this is the gay flag, right? And let's do it. And, you know, I'm really <laughs> excited. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it took a little while for me to get them interested. And um, finally, they, they agreed to take a chance on it, and that, that for a flag to become... Uh, 
a flag, it needs to be used. And, and more than just two big flags for one event, it needs to be something that's available and can be interpreted. And so I remember I, I got them to roll the dice on making some little, like, four-by-six-inch silk flags. We printed them up, and I think maybe 5,000 sold out in, like, two hours at some event. And all of a sudden, people went, hmm, there's something going on here, because people really loved it. People really wanted it. And then they began to put it on their homes and their businesses, and and slowly but surely, over the course of a few years, um, its use became more and more um, important in terms of San Francisco, ultimately New York, and the big cities. And it really gave us a way to identify our neighborhoods, our businesses. Our, you know, I'd laugh. I go to some store, and you know, they always have the little little stickers in the window for Mastercard and Visa, and then they have a little rainbow. Right. Like, well. Yeah, what a, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. It's just, okay, we're gay-friendly. I like that. I get it. But it's, like, it's not like we have our own charge card. <laughs> until later, until later, and then we did. Martina Navratilova put together the rainbow card much, much later as a, as a, as a way to raise money for some of her uh, philanthropic works. So and I think she worked it out with the bank, and there's the rainbow card, and they got some kind of percentage. Oh, that's like incredible that. how so far it's that, gone. That evolved yeah. much, much later. Oh, incredible. But in the beginning, it really was a very organic, simple thing. And then the next part of that um, evolution was I took it to an industrial flag maker, Paramount, who basically took me under their wing and realized yeah, this was going to be an important flag. And I worked um, with them for about 10 years, um, doing all kinds of displays, learning the whole way flags are put together, how they're sewn, Mm. how they're made, how they're sold, you know, how they're used and their histories. So it was really uh, a stroke of luck for me that I was able to be in a situation where I was in the industry and, and be able to learn all about it. So that helped me immensely develop it because it went from being just a few flags to being millions mm-hmm. and um and full disclosure i work at the museum of modern art okay. which recently acquired that's right the rainbow flag they, in its collection that is not it. my fault by no, the way so i just wonder <laughs> how you view that the, you know, the act of being acquired in a museum. Oh, what is that like? Does that kidding? change how you feel about your when they work? Called I mean, me, what does I that mean? I felt like I won the lottery. Really? How yeah. did that happen? Um, I got an email from the museum um, saying that they were uh, really interested in the rainbow flag. They'd obviously done an amazing amount of research and history already. And as a courtesy, were reaching out to me if I had any problem with that. And, of course, I didn't. And and, and they are aware as as... as as others are, and I was very sad to learn in the very beginning that the rainbow flag, because it's a flag, is in the public domain. So there's no royalties and there's no ownership of it, if you get my drift, other yeah. than I own the artworks that I make. Nobody owns the rights to the American flag. Nobody owns the rights to any flag. Flags are public domain, if they're a flag. And I had to choose very quickly early on, is this just a a cloth thing I'm making, or is it a flag? And of course, I wanted it to be a flag. So, hmm. yeah, I watched all my, my millions just evaporate. Right, but you're me. always considered the designer. Oh, of sure, of the, course, I'm yeah. the creator because I made yeah. it happen, and you I never stopped happen. making it happen. I'm still making it happen, almost 40 years later. I never stopped. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's a, it's the work of a lifetime, and and uh, proudly so. 
Tell me about your early days sewing. How did you learn how to sew? What's your interest in sewing as a, well, like I, mean, I said I was a big drag queen I had to have clothes I, <laughs> so I it was out of necessity good. out necessity. of necessity absolutely did, did you have a, a mentor or somebody who taught no. you how to sew as a child oh, yeah. oh, or? no I wish my grandmother really wonderful seamstress my mother too both oh. of them but oh no 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 I was supposed to be a doctor. It wasn't until later when I had, after the Army, and I got away from Kansas, where I grew up and was living in San Francisco, and all of a sudden I was really free to express my, you know, my, my inner self and, and my ideas about how I looked. And, and I had a, a friend, Mary Bunn, and she lived across the street from uh, San Francisco State, where I went to college. And we used to hang out all the time, smoke pot, and read Vogue magazine, and sit there wondering, God, wouldn't it be so cool if we could go to Studio 54, and wow, here's the latest Saint Laurent's from Paris. And, and so we would sort of, sort of sit there and dream of fashion. And, and she was a big Oregon earth mama, you know, like 250 pounds, strong as an ox, you know, hardly supermodel material. But we both had this great love of fashion, and she did know how to sew. From the sort of high school home economics background, so uh, she finally gave me a sewing machine as a, as, a, as, a, as a treat, gave me a little Kenmore, and said, here, you need to learn how to do this. So I learned, I got a machine, and I just started doing it, and that's how, it's like music. You get an instrument and you practice and you practice and you practice and you practice. It's it's very complicated because it, you never reach perfection. There's always a oops, a little moment where you miss a note or you miss a stitch or oh, you know. There's mm-hmm. a, you know, you strive for perfection that is elusive with sewing and music. That it's not, and, and and sometimes the accidents are beautiful and wonderful, and then sometimes they're terrible. So they're 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 both. Um, about patience. You have to have mm-hmm. this incredible Zen ability to to be patient, to go slow, to understand that you can't quite reach perfection, yet you want to make every moment as good as possible. You know, do it right every time was always my motto. So. Mm-hmm. And then you sh- you can learn. I mean, I, I'm very good, but I went to work for the opera at one point because I wanted to learn more about the craft of sewing. So you know, all my friends are like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, I, I need to I need to bump up my craft. And, you know, all my friends think I'm the greatest of the world. But when I started working with women from Angaro and Valentino that had been sewing for 15 generations, I was like the biggest hillbilly that ever walked through the door. <laughs> They're like, what in the world? What, what kinds of this? things did you make when you were with the opera? Uh, we did uh, an opera. We did Pique Dom, a Tchaikovsky opera. Uh, set in the uh, French Revolution, very beautiful, the Queen of Spades, and a beautiful, uh, very Marie Antoinette, you know, big, huge uh, ball gowns and corseting and, and fabulous military uniforms and Louis. Oh, wow. Yeah, beautiful, very complicated, all very authentic. And but also there's a, um, a practicality to costuming as well, as similar to the flag, right? I mean, it has to function yes, it does. in some really demanding it isn't conditions. It is like making just another evening gown. I right. Remember, oh, yeah, I remember making a... Uh, a beautiful uh, ball gown for one of the principals in in, uh, in uh, one of the the uh, operas that we were coincidentally doing stuff for, and, 
anyway, she came in and to try on this insane ball gown. I mean, the fabric was like $8,000 a yard from Venice, right? And lots of it. And she, she comes in and throws off her fabric. I will never wear this dress. I will look like a pumpkin. And we're all like going, oh, no. It's like all the lighting and the set. It's all, opera is insanely. It's all coordinated, oh, right? it's beautiful. It's such a high, high thing. And we're dying. I mean, okay, there's like a $100,000 dress sitting over there, and she's not even going to try to put it on. And the head of the costume shop just came out with a can of black spray paint and just went, and shaded it in, and there's the little hourglass, and worked in the lights, and so it was like, no oh my god, way. that all, is some <laughs> serious problem solving right there. <laughs> yeah, it was, and 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 that's a lot of what sewing is, a uh, lot, especially in in the flag world. And, so there, then, for regular people who don't know that much about the flag business, there's actually like a governing body that well, there's sort of a decides. trade association, the Vexilla. There's, yeah. a, there's two. There's the North American Vexillographers, and there's an international vexil, vexillography, B-E-X-I-L-L-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y, vexillography. It's the word for what we do. In fact, it's from the Latin vex, which is a symbol and mm. that the Romans would carry. So that covers heraldry and flag-making, but, yeah, that's vexillography. So it's huh. not a governing body in the sense that they sit around and and, and you know, make rules. The rules and protocols of flags are pretty much made up by their countries and who made them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I made two flags in the beginning, was I, I wanted to break all of that in the 1970 iconoclast way. I didn't want to have a, a right way and a wrong way, you know, the up way and the, you know, mm-hmm. that's why there were two with purple on, on one side, pink up on the other side, so that we would always be, as I said, a versatile people, and we wouldn't be encumbered by the very rigid kind of um, rules around flags and the protocols, which are serious, I mean, especially with the American flag. Right, right. It's just, it's an incredible and brilliant story about um, creativity being used to such, um, to such success, to such successful ends that Things became accomplished because of this. Yeah, this I mean thing that, that came made. later. The, the The success of the rainbow flag is about the way that the public embraced it. I, I always say you can't design a flag. I mean, I, I did and I made it, and the end, and the end, I get all the credit, and I love it. But you can't do that. A flag is torn from the soul of the people. It's something visceral. It, it's an idea that reaches past the cloth into people's souls. And that's why the rainbow flag endures, because it means something to people. It represents them in a way that they intuitively understand. You know, I, I kind of um, marvel at the phenomena of it, you know, the way that, mm-hmm. as I used to say, the, the, the gayest place in town was Toys R Us. If you want rainbows, just <laughs> go to the toy store. And a lot of it is really horrible and tacky and playful and fun. Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, and the rainbow itself has this huge, long, ancient history in terms of its use in all kinds of other cultures, island culture, Asian culture, Egyptians, the Chinese. It really goes back. So we're not the first people to use the rainbow, but we took the rainbow, made it a flag, and that is our symbol to the point now where everyone looks at the rainbow and thinks it's gay. You know, or it's the gay thing. You know, I, I kind of marvel at the phenomena that, that that's become. Yeah. One of the, um, well, the big question that we've been asking at the Project Room for two years, our current theme is, how are we remembered? 
And so I would love to know if you ever think about that question and think about your own legacy and and if you were to write an autobiography or if you were to I share I have been writing my autobiography for 20 Wonderful. years. It's really good. Lots of juicy stories. <laughs> I can't and, wait to read it. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and, and we'll see. Um, so how are you approaching that? Uh, over the long course of time to, again, I'm not a writer naturally, but again, I felt like I should write my own book and that I needed to teach myself. So I just like sewing, just, <laughs> just like, like flag sewing. making, just like flag making. And so, and I have friends who are really accomplished writers. I got a lot of advice about mm-hmm. listening to my voice, about following that. And then, um, the thing is I've had a really great life and yet it's very, uh, universal in the way that my life is very representative of so many other lives, very similar. I just did this weird pod thing, but your legacy, of course I think about it, um, When I was making the first Rainbow Flags, I remember we were in the top floor gallery of the Gay Community Center on Grove Street, and we would lay there, looking up at the ceiling, taking a break from the endless sewing and ironing. I mean, we ironed every inch of that fabric, like a thousand yards of fabric. I blew out every ironing pan. And I remember laying there on the floor, looking up at the ceiling, and somebody had graffitied, all is for the crematorium. This is in an art gallery, Quasa. And that stuck with me, that everything we do is very temporary, everything. And, you know, legacy, well, what does that mean? Um, it's all going to be dust. It's all going to go. Um, so I don't really fixate on that too much because I keep that in my mind that, yeah, okay, well, what does that mean? And then just recently my sister passed away, so I have had that more of a... Uh, uh, more thought about well, what does that really mean? It's mm. really easy to just dismiss it; it's all going to, you know, turn to nothing. But it made me wonder about: um, will it outlive its success? Hmm. You know, will it become unnecessary for us to have a rainbow flag? Is that something? I don't, it's not in the foreseeable future because we're a global struggle. It's still going to go on for a while. But eventually, you never know. Um, so I, I don't really have an answer for that. My legacy, I guess, is in the work that I make. It's in the flags that I produce or the things that I work on. That's Those are the things. And a lot of those things just exist for a few minutes or, you know, they're very short. Cumulatively, I don't know what, what, what that means. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to congratulate you on creating a symbol that has such an enduring quality because it's really... Um, lasted and had so much power maybe even increased its power over time and certainly it's been adapted in so many different forms as you shared um and and it seems to me that that's just so unusual that it's it's unlikely that things will catch on in that way and that there was something really magical about about what came together well in the movie world i have a lot of friends here in movies i love film i love working in, in, in that medium um you have to do the, the the right thing in the right way at the right time. And for me, that all came together. I had the right skills. I, 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 as much as I love fashion, I was not in the fashion town. I should have been in New York or Paris. But I was in the right town for gay rights. San Francisco in the 70s was incredible. And in the right way. 
Um, you know, like I said, what I really thought about that it needed to have a birth in terms of you know community involvement, where it was made, you know how it was made. That that would all be part of its story ultimately if it was going to have one. So uh, I'm I'm lucky that I had that um, mm. uh, the intuition to you know just to believe that even though I didn't really know entirely what I was doing, I was sort of winging it that it was important. And then when the actual day came on uh, June 25th, 1978, and it really is working, and up it goes, and oh my God, you know, it's just stunning, beautiful. I knew right at that moment um, that that was the most important thing I would ever do in my whole life. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me and sharing your stories. It's so nice to talk to you in person. Sure.